big welcome again to everyone. This is the Global Ed Leaders Live Space. We are talking about international schools in this space and international education more broadly. And this week, I am co-hosting with the brilliant Dan Rosen, who's based um, in an international school in Germany and on half term. So I so appreciate you being here, Dan. And we're talking about accountability for international schools. Dan, would you be able to give a quick recap of just um, of your background, also what you just brought up when we were cut off before um, on that tension between what happens in the UK, Ofsted, and accountability in international school? Set the scene for us. Of course, of course. Um, I mean, I think everyone who is even remotely related to UK education is aware of the issues surrounding Ofsted and accountability and the knock-on toxic uh, issues that, that occur within schools as a result. And uh, a lot of people think that when they move to an international school, that those kind of um, problems disappear. And, and in fact, when we were posting uh, that we were hosting this space, you know, a couple of the comments were that people go to, to move away from Ofsted and, and what a silly idea to even think that we need uh, some, some sort of international Ofsted. Um, I don't think we do, but uh, to think that, um, you know, there is no accountability in international schools is obviously not correct. Um, in the Middle East, as I explained uh, earlier, there are, you know, national uh, <laughs> national accountability frameworks, which can sometimes be just as stressful as Ofsted. Um, and then there's all kinds of accrediting bodies like CIS, COBIS. Um, there's a couple of other ones as well. And the question I have when thinking about this is, you know, is that accountability sufficient? Is that good enough uh, for parents, for students, uh, for potential employees, teachers moving abroad? And how do we know um, that, that, you know, our schools are doing what they say they do? Uh, and I suppose one of the kind of background things that churns in my mind is that these accrediting bodies, schools pay for them. So schools are paying for an accrediting body to come in and say their school is doing X, Y, or Z. And, and that kind of feels a little kind of, not quite right when you're trying to talk about accountability. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the, the basis for where I was thinking. And then obviously other thoughts are that um, parents hold schools accountable, the teachers within schools hold uh, schools accountable, but equally schools hold teachers to account in different ways. And I think in the international sector, you see this kind of myriad of approaches uh, that leads to kind of some amazing things and some some pretty awful things too. I love that as a starting point, Dan. And I think you've raised so many interesting points on the different layers of accountability we've got in international schools and what we need to grapple with. I've got a few thoughts that I'd love to come in on. But first, I want to welcome uh, Lucy, uh, because I know you've been, come up to the stage as a speaker, Lucy. How are you doing? Where are you joining from, Lucy? I'm all right. I'm actually joining you from, from Portugal. I saw uh, that I think Dan must think I stalk him around the internet because, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't. Um, but uh, I saw that Dan was involved in this and I thought, oh, how interesting. So I was just going to kind of listen in. I mean, I don't know kind of how valuable my contribution is here uh, because I'm not in leadership as such, but or at all, actually, at the moment. But uh, I just think it's interesting, uh, the accountability aspect has come up a lot recently amongst my colleagues and kind of where we sit in terms of um sort of what um you know what we're kind of adhering to what we're not adhering to so i'm just uh i'm more sort of a, a passenger here but i will uh jump in if i have any thoughts can, can i ask a question in that case lucy sure 
Um, because I think this this kind of gets to what started me off in the first place thinking about it was, you know, teachers moving abroad and thinking they can get away from the Ofsted ills, as it were. What, what do you feel as a teacher um, in terms of accountability from your leadership team, from the school, from parents? Like, and, and how is that different to the pressures that Ofsted put on, if, if there is any difference? Well, before, um, actually just before, maybe a year or two years before I joined my current school, they had a COBIS inspection, um, which was, I mean, it seemed, it was sort of along the same lines as an offset inspection would be, but less less stressful. Um, and of course, there was a lot of, uh, you know, they had more warning, they knew that it was coming. And so that was, um, they were able to kind of, get things in place that maybe weren't there, et cetera. But in terms of um, sort of general accountability, we're part of a um, larger corporate group. So there's the accountability to them. And uh, at the moment, we're fairly new to the group. So there's we're still trying to align ourselves uh, in terms of what the, the other schools within the group are, are doing. Some of it, of course, we're... Uh, okay with other aspects of it so when you go from being your own kind of little independent entity which is what my school was to being part of kind of a, a bigger picture there are adjustments that uh, kind of some go down well and others don't let's say and um in terms of parent accountability I think um I mean I sort of we know that international schools are all kind of fee-paying fee schools so there is as much as I don't like to bring the money side into it, I do feel that certainly going from the, the state system in the UK to a, to any private entity, private system, you're, you're going to get a bit more pressure in, in that respect uh, as, as well. Um, and then kind of day to day, the, the expectations are high, I think. Um, and, you know, I think Dan, Dan would, would say this as well. You know, you are at the end of the day, a, um, a, a beacon as an international school, you do set, set an example, you do um, have high standards, students tend to do very, very well and go on to do great things. So I think that uh, there's huge accountability there as as well. Wonderful. I, and I think, I suppose the overall question is, is, is that more or less preciousome than, than the Ofsted uh, situation, do you think? Is that more or less pressure? different i would i would say um i mean you're not kind of getting sort of one word grades and and things like that but it's i still think it's it's a as much as you know when we say we when as we know we move internationally to kind of alleviate some of those pressures it um i think it's i wouldn't say it's the same stuff in a different hat but i would say it's it's still i mean i'm still acutely aware on a on a daily basis of of those of those pressures but I wouldn't say it was keeping me awake at night like um when I was at a school that was going through or was uh requires improvement uh, in the UK and we were constantly subject to sort of DFE visits and, and things like that mm -hmm. I do feel from sort of the powers that be we kind of get left alone a lot a lot more um by people like Cobus and things like that but uh, day to day, I think it's very much dependent on the school on the school environment as as well, and kind of how how that's operating as to how much of that pressure you feel. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I think one of my kind of questions for myself is, as a leader, how can I ensure that you know the staff that work at the school don't feel um, the unnecessary pressure caused by 
whatever accountability our school has. You know, we are probably similar to you. You know, we have a, a board of governors, which obviously hold us accountable, parents, students. Uh, we obviously have to adhere by IB guidelines and we choose to be a member of, of COBIS. And I think part of the challenge for leadership um, is <clears throat> for us to get that right, because the flip side, I think, and, and where I think individual school leadership has a really huge part to play here is that there's zero accountability. And um, I think that feels very, very wrong because you end up in situations, and, and I've seen it in international schools, where you have long-standing members of staff that um, are, can do, do what they like. And, and that sounds really freeing and wonderful and amazing, except if they're not very good or, you know, their practices aren't very, you know, <laughs> in line with what, what best practice would be or, or whatever, it then becomes a real challenge because you end up with this kind of unaccountable kind of circle whereby it's really difficult to hold everyone, including leadership, to account on outcomes um, because you have a transient population, you have no kind of real metric, there's always excuses. And and for me, that flip side is not quite as bad as, as the Ofsted toxicity. But I think in terms of student outcomes, I think there's there's a real kind of moral and ethical obligation for, for leaders to ensure that there is accountability. And, and I guess coming back full circle to what got me starting to think about this is that everyone, you know, goes, right, we, we get rid of Ofsted or we go to the international sector and there's no Ofsted. What a wonderful life that will be. But actually, that can never be the case because leadership has a has an ethical and moral duty to ensure that standards are high. And that is then reinforced by parents, governors, um, sometimes national guidelines as well. And so I think kind of it, it all interlinks. There's no easy way to kind of withdraw an, an external body without kind of um, also then putting pressure on somewhere else to ensure there's internal uh, capabilities. And so, yeah, I, th- I think that's where I get to with, with kind of the whole mishmash of it not being better nor worse, just different. Um, and I think it is less toxic. I think most international schools are, uh, I mean, I'm biased. I think they're happier places to work as a result. Um, but I do think it's not quite the the panacea or, or there's not quite no accountability in the international market uh, to a, to that extent. So, yeah, um, I think that's a really interesting point that you make there, Lucy, about feeling it or not or not feeling it. And it's just different. I think that's important. I love this um, <clears throat> this discussion so far. It's, it's thank you so much, Lucy. Thank you, Dan. Like you brought up, really got me thinking about the layers of accountability. I, I I think Dan, when you first presented this as an idea to me, and I thought this would be a brilliant discussion. I, what initially came to my mind was, do we need um, because Ofsted was on my mind, right? Well, you know, with that the kind of stuff that's been happening in the UK, I kind of thought, do we need uh, an accountability body that oversees international schools. And that's kind of where I was thinking. But it's interesting when you start to unpack, what are those, even though we don't have an Ofsted body, what are those accountability measures that are already in place and how do they affect us? I really liked the way kind of between you just broken down a few of those areas. So we've got we've got parents who are accountable, probably especially a lot of those in, in, in international schools, being pr- private fee-paying schools, there's that accountability, which puts one pressure on schools in a certain direction. Um, but then you've got, like Lucy said, corporate groups as well, which are becoming increasingly interested in 
schools. And it's interesting, Lucy, that you say that your group's just been acquired by one of these big corporate players. Um, they're now they're taking more and more schools around the world. And um, there's some predictions I saw with the ISC that sees that just getting bigger and bigger and bigger over the next few years, more schools being consolidated onto these big corporations, which many of which um, have a profit motive as well. So then you've got this accountability to a board of directors or accountability to uh, a C-suite who are governing a business. And then you've got, of course, accountability, which is the first that have come to a lot of people's minds when I raised the question online, where people said, well, we already have it. Like you mentioned with COBIS, with CIS, with um, other, other accountability groups that schools pay for. And I cheekily said to reply to someone online and said, yeah, but aren't they just marketing tools? I think something you alluded to, Dan, as well, like the idea that we're paying into these. Is it really in their interest to hold the school to a specific standard? Gosh, it's really complex. Lucy, you've got your hand up. What are you thinking? No, I was just going to say that with these um, big corporate organisations, to kind of people who sort of aren't really familiar with what this looks like, the only thing I can kind of really compare it to is academy trusts kind of on on steroids, which is, I suppose, in some respects unfair, but also kind of true. You know, these are big, big businesses, and they are businesses at the end of the day. They have a, a CEO at the top who might not necessarily have education experience, may do, may not. Uh, Certainly their HR departments, um, again, some do, some don't. So there is... There is that aspect. And of course, I have to be mindful here because my school is, is, is part of one. But it's it, the, the idea that these schools are becoming um, more sort of business-centred as opposed to school-centred, kind of when I put those sort of both in inverted commas, I think is a, is a very real thing. I never had heard of schools having sort of Instagram accounts and whole marketing teams prior to being in the, in the international system. That was a very weird and strange concept to me but it is part and parcel of of being involved in this and i'm going to say it again in this business international schools slightly different as well to that private model right like in the uk these are not charities like you said a lot of these are profit-making organizations and in a business where and and you add an extra layer to that many of these companies who are owning international schools are also owned by larger companies above them which own a multitude of businesses you know big pension funds and the such so that pressure that's coming you know maybe at a distance where the people who are making the big decisions at the top maybe have a portfolio of which education is only one part of it um that's you know that is a new a new context for many um, school teachers getting involved in these schools. Um, also for many school leaders, I think this is kind of a new concept to get around. And, and the, I know from firsthand experience, you know, speaking to many leaders that many principals in these kind of schools sometimes feel that their job is mainly held accountable by growth, by numbers rather than by education, which has been a difficult transition for them um, as leaders. 
And just to welcome um, Mr. Lincoln History into the chat as well. I'll pass it back to you, Dan. What are you thinking? Yeah, I was. I was. The, the whole profit making thing is really interesting because I think, like actually, independent schools in the UK, you and Lucy are right. We have this huge kind of business organisations, but I think as one thing that kind of people miss sometimes is they see um, schools as not for profits, right? So there's lots of not-for-profit schools out there. Um, I'm sure that the reality is that's probably a tax break if I'm being cynical. But but I also think it kind of misguides some people into thinking that they're, they're not businesses because obviously only not-for-profit not just means they're not going to take profits and give them to shareholders. That doesn't mean you can't salary staff on insane wages. And I think when people come to go to look at the international market, they often think, oh, it's okay, I'm going to country X or country Y where, you know, maybe it's thought that these schools are profit organizations, but they justify it by saying it's okay. It's a, it's a not for profit. And I think that kind of is just a massive, massive misconception. You know, all that means is that they don't give profit to shareholders. Um, there are plenty of not for profits that have insanely highly salaried members of staff who may not actually have anything to do with uh, the day-to-day running of the school. So that was going to be my first point. But um, I actually wanted to come up to to slightly on what Lucy touched on in terms of, you know, what is the goal of, of these educational organisations? Because we all think we get in, we're teachers, we get into this to make a difference to students, we get into this to kind of educate, right? That's, that's literally our job. Um, but that's not necessarily the case for big, you know, big conglomerates or big companies. And And I think the challenge then comes is that there then becomes perverse incentives with regards to accountability. So I'll give you an example. If you have a, a transient population whereby families are only going to stay at your school for two, three, four years, what that means is um, rather than focusing long term on, on the long term education of, of the children at your school, um, it could be, and I say could, um, because obviously it comes down to the individual leadership within that school, but we could end up pushing perverse incentives to keep parents happy, to get rave reviews, to do these whiz-bang marketing, Instagram-worthy kind of events or or ideas to say, look how good we are as a school, because it serves to keep your current parents happy, um, which is good for business, and it serves to show future parents what, what you can do, and that's good for business. But actually, you know, if a child can't learn to read in primary school, that, that's a disaster. But But the reality is, is that your families may leave before that reality comes. And, and my concern is, is that is, is because of the transient nature of many international schools, because of uh, the perverse incentives and because of all this thing kind of related to the business element of the school, uh, I, I, I fear, worry, um, I don't know what quite the word is, but without good moral, ethical leadership within a school, regardless of who owns it, regardless of who does it, um, unless the leadership within a school are holding people to account themselves, their families, um, the staff, you could end up with this kind of weirdly perverse model where actually education is, is a, is a by thought. Um, and I think that's where having external accreditation or external accountability, I think does have a place. And I think there is a, a huge aspect missing there in the international market, which people might moan about in the UK but at least if you're sending your children to those schools, you know there is something. It might not be working at the moment, but at least there's someone who has no vested interest in the outcome of accountability to make a judgment. And I think that for me is is kind of 
we bring it back to this moral and ethical accountability of leadership within a school because I feel like that's the the driving force because it has to be because it's the only known constant we have to hold people accountable to education. Dan, I'm I'm wondering. I'm going to kind of throw a bit of a provocation out there because you've you've really got me thinking. I think that's really interesting. That, and I think we see it in a lot of schools, right? International schools. They are appealing to parents because they're the market. Um, they're what's kind of driving the growth. So you appeal to parents. You can end up doing, as you said, whiz band things that are not necessarily the most educationally sound. I wonder if this has happened for a long time already. And I wonder what the impact is on international schools, given that a lot of the time, and I'm, I, I'm speaking to schools in Asia right now, so correct me if it's a little bit different in the European market, but a lot of the time international schools are dealing with um, children from fairly privileged backgrounds, both financially. They've got a lot of capital behind them in terms of their futures. Um, is this... Is this kind of whiz-bang schooling having as big an impact as we worry on their education? And I'll give an example. So there's, for example, a lot of um, schools in the UK, for example, from where we're from, uh, are trying to focus on methods of, let's say, direct instruction approach or these kind of behavior systems that to really help accelerate children's learning children's learning in a minute whereas international schools sit very um, comfortably a lot of the time in this kind of inquiry area which is kind of contentious in many schools in the uk as to like well does that even work are the studies robust enough i'm just kind of wondering if because of the nature of the privileged environment we're in is are our schools more resilient to quote unquote poorer practice i, I think that's a fantastic question i think i'd i would flip it and i would argue, i would ask the question are the students and families at the schools able to ride the negative effects of poor practices so i, I think you know regardless of my personal beliefs on inquiry learning or, or direct instruction or anything like that, whatever practice is used, actually the families that tend to go to international schools as genuine expats, I'm talking about, you know, the families that are paid, you know, the companies pay for them to go to the schooling or they, you know, they live a very, you know, wealthy lifestyle in any society, regardless whether they go to an international school or whether they don't, those families are the ones that are going to be able to to ride the consequences of of bad education. Be that because parents can do it. Be that because they can pay for a tutor. Be that because they have huge cultural capital or or anything like that. Right? There's huge kind of mitigating factors that kind of counter poor practice. So I do think that that, that those sorts of things will be more prevalent in a in a more privileged. Um, environment or a more privileged educational environment but i also think that is coupled with schools not having to be accountable for their results you know if you think about league tables in the uk which are an absolute shocker of course you know i, I think there are better ways to do that but the reality is is whether a school gets you know all of their students to be able to read or write or whether a school gets you know students to get a really good ib diploma score or whatever it is you you know, there's so many mitigating factors to explain away bad results that actually 
it ceases to be able to be an accountability function. So, yeah, I think I think you are completely right. I think the families are more resilient. I think they're able to um, counteract poor education, and and then even more on top of that, where there is a major, and there is some, there are some outstanding international schools. But those families are even able to supplement, right? So, so it's it's kind of like the uh, they're on steroids in terms of quality of education that they can provide. And so you end up with schools not needing to teach certain aspects because the students are so privileged and so far ahead that actually, do you know what? They can do the whiz bang stuff, and it's a reflection of the fact that stu- the children can do it as opposed to they're doing it to please the marketing. And so it's really difficult to week out. But I think you've hit on a really, really um, pertinent point there, Shane. Thanks, Dan. I, I like your reflection. And, and yeah, it, it brings me back to, I think, what Lucy said. What is the purpose? What's the purpose of um, accountability in our setting? And I'm just kind of, I guess I'm just feeling um, a little bit skeptical whether the outcomes on average would change that much with an accountability system in place in the same way that they change in a place like the UK. I would, I'd, come, I'd love to come to Lucy in a second, but I'd love to also present this to everyone in the room. I received a DM um, from a teacher who I'll keep, an, they'd, like, they'd like to stay anonymous. Um, but I thought this was interesting because this potentially brings a slightly different aspect to why you would want accountability systems in place. I'll read this to you. They said, I'm not pro-Ofsted, the UK body, but I am pro-standards. And in my experience, there are so many coasting teachers and leaders internationally compared to the UK. And they said if they ranked the SLT, the senior leaders that they'd worked with over 16 years, the top 20, not one of them would be from an international school. The number of teachers to a bare minimum, because they can, is staggering too. Um, I was literally told at one school, a big name school, don't worry, in quotes, don't worry, the kids all come good as they all cram and get tutoring. Um, interesting uh, kind of follows on from what you just said there. Lucy, what were you, what were you thinking? And then Dan, I'd love to, love to hear you. And Tom, Emma, if you want to take the mic, please request it come up to the stage. I'd love to hear from you. I was just kind of pondering this this whole accountability thing as as um as international schools and I'm kind of thinking about the fact that wherever you are in an international school and I'm in a British international school we teach English curriculum we sort of exist in this weird space this kind of depending on on where on where you are and um I was talking to a to another international teacher last night who is in a uh, predominantly Muslim country and uh, kind of, you know, how, you know, whether or not you can kind of talk about Valentine's Day and, and things like that. So if you are going to hold these schools accountable and you are going to have a sort of a, a, a body, it's, it's going to be very difficult to kind of uh, sort of assess these schools kind of, are you going to sort of assess them as, as uh, sort of these kind of weird, I'm trying to articulate this, it's sort of, sounds better in my head but are you going to kind of assess them as these kind of sort of entities sort of standalone entities or as part of kind of the wider community that 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 they're in as as well because it it's it's so difficult for some of these schools to kind of navigate being an international environment in in certain countries because 
there are certain things in certain countries you cannot talk about or cannot have as part of the curriculum because it's just not allowed. So I kind of wonder how that would be navigated as well. It's more, I suppose, presenting presenting a problem rather than a solution to this. Thanks, Lucy. Dan, do you want to come on that before I come in? Uh, I mean, I was, I, was, I was still processing what you were saying before from that DM, if I'm honest, Shane, because I think that DM is... It was fascinating. Sorry, Lucy, I've just kind of ignored your point no, entirely. No, <laughs> it was the, the DM was living in my head rent free. Um, I, and so I, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to be harsh on, on leadership teams in, within, within international schools. Um, I think that, first of all, I hope to God that's not one of my members of staff. Um, second of all, um, I, I think, I think it resonates quite quite well not not because the individual slt aren't driven and not because the individual teachers um can't be amazing and don't want to work hard i I think that i think that's not fair and i think that the the uk system has gone too far one way however i do think that kind of that that sentiment from from the dm is kind of where i was getting at whereby whatever accountability we have in place currently in the international market actually the biggest accountability comes from the leadership teams within schools. And I think that reflects my experience um, of visiting numerous international schools and, and with colleagues that have worked in numerous international schools that I think, you know, we talk about motivation in general, right. As a, as a big picture topic. And we talk about, you know, mastery and purpose and, uh, and autonomy and things like that. But the reality is, is that actually that drive from the individuals, be that individual teachers or be that individual SLT, is kind of the thing that's the glue that holds it all together. And I think well-meaning teachers who are phenomenal can end up in a state of malaise because it's very difficult to be that person in a culture whereby it doesn't exist, you know, in, the, in a culture of low standards, in a culture of lax or kind of, you know, lazy approaches that's really easy. That's really difficult to be that standout teacher. And it's also really difficult as a, as a leader to be that person enforcing when actually there is no kind of framework to, to support you. So I think that that DM resonates for all the wrong reasons. Um, but the reality is, I, th- I think that's probably, probably not an unfair statement, which I think exemplifies the entire issue we have around accountability, right? Is, is that if that's even allowed to happen, how? Like no one would want their child to go to a school whereby teachers are coasting, people are lazy. Like that, that feels like the worst thing to do with your child is send them to a school like that. And yet that, that happens, must happen, you know, on a huge scale across the world, irrelevant of all accreditation, irrelevant of anything else. So I think, yeah, that, that's kind of, I think that person, I'd love that person to come online uh, and give their views. I think it'd be really interesting to hear from them. Absolutely, Dan, um, and uh, really resonate. And same with you, Lucy. Like the idea of that context in our schools is is so different. Um, and I did invite that person on as well. So I think hopefully they can come on and and share a bit because I think that's really valuable, worrying, but valuable. But also shows why culture in our schools is so important, and why I, I you know I talk a lot about the leadership being so vital. Because, as you said, Dan, it's transient in our schools. So the accountability comes from the leaders. We haven't got this list of standards um, that we are accountable to. And even with things like COBIS, with CIS, yeah, we do, or with um, NIASC, the American ones, or WASC or whatever, 
these are big, you know, kind of portfolios that we put together. But let's face it, these bodies have a vested interest to let the schools and, and at best what they do is give recommendations. And I've been in schools where leaders have said, we do it because it's good for our reputation. It helps us hire better staff. It helps us market. But, you know, we take with a pinch of salt their findings. Um, I just want to welcome um, into the room Chris and China Driven. Welcome to the room. How are you, how are you doing? Please feel free to request the mic, press the little press the little mic button, request it, and uh, come and chat with us. But I want to pass to to Tom. I saw you've um, come up to the stage, Tom. How are you doing, mate? I'm not too bad. Just just closing up the uh, the Chinese New Year holiday. Um, so it's uh, yeah, just just gradually picking the computer up towards the end of the week. <laughs> Happy New Year! Cheers, and you. <laughs> um, I just wanted to uh, to chip in with a few things. I've been listening to the whole conversation, and um, I'm just make, making sure it's very clear. I'm not that person who wrote that the end to you. Um, the um, <laughs> although although I have I have seen schools like that, but I, I didn't write it to you. <laughs> um, the um, the biggest thing that I, I'm a I'm a leader in a in a school and I've been international for about 15 years. Um, and the the culture of accountability is the is the most important thing that a, a leader can bring to their school. Um, I think you've all kind of moved up moved towards that that line of thinking anyway. Um, the biggest thing is to make make sure that and my if any of my staff listen to this, they'll know exactly what I'm going to say next. It's the why behind it. It's the the most important thing is to say. Why are we doing it for the staff first? Um, and it's it's obviously to make sure the children's expectations in the class are being met and the the children are learning. Um, but then the why takes a, a second level of how do we express that why? How how can we indirectly market that to our to our parents to make sure that we are um, we are explaining why and how we are holding our teachers accountable? Now to have an, an international. Um, governing body or accreditation uh, group that to keep everybody under the same umbrella i think that's an inefficient way of looking at it because you need to think about the cultural context of those schools around the world um you need to look at look at those cultural contexts within the locality um to understand what is allowed what is not allowed i, I think lucy mentioned it in the middle east it, there's or it might have been done um in the middle east there there might be questions about why you can do certain things and that's the same uh, for me here in China, um, there there are things you can do, things you can't do. But as long as there is a framework of accountability in place, I think the accreditation should be looking towards that and looking to check on the leadership and the framework of accountability and the why behind it. Um, then, then my two cents. I'm going to stay a little bit quieter because I've got a little dog who's scared of fireworks. So uh, if I if I don't speak up again, uh, thank you for having me. That's brilliant, Tom. I really really appreciate it. and I'm. I'm kind of taking from you. I really like how you framed it within leaders have to really think about their why and think about their purpose. It's in fact, it's just reminded me of a blog that came out this week um, by um, Steve Lancashire, who, for anyone who doesn't know, so Steve Lancashire, he's chair of Forum Strategies, National Trust Leaders, CEO Networks, and he provides mentoring for a lot of school CEOs. He released a blog about accountability only this week, and I'm going to share it in the in the group um, in a moment. Um, and he talks about the potential um, of accountability systems should be about holding schools account 
acceptable to the purpose that they've set out to their community. So that's kind of speaking to what you were saying, Thomas, about that personalization, what you were saying, Lucy, about the difference between schools, about a school articulating its purpose and then some kind of body holding uh, the schools accountable through, um, yeah, what is your purpose? Are you living to that? And I know some school groups run their quality assurance systems in that way. Um, let me quickly dig that out and find it, but I'll pass back on to you, Dan. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting because I think that sounds like a, a very good way of doing it, but I, it still raises the same questions for me because what if a school's purpose is, you know, to do something, whatever it may be, that isn't in the best long-term interest of students? That That could be really, you know, that could be a really kind of awkward tension there. Um, but also, um, who's judging that? Is that is the person judging that? Do they have a vested interest? Now, obviously, an external accreditation body. I think I agree with with Thomas. We don't we don't want a, <laughs> a, a, an international officer. That'd be a disaster. Um, but the question is: is when you pay someone to come in and check it, is it like an auditor, like we have in the business world, or is it like um, you know you're paying your mate to come and check your maths homework because? Where that accountability lies has a huge impact because purpose is this vague, nebulous concept, right? And and all of our schools that we work in could have a similar purpose. I, I'm pretty sure I've never seen a mission statement from a school where I think, oh, I wouldn't want to work there. Every single mission statement uh, and values, you know, everyone writes it in their applications. Oh, the values really speak to my heart. Well, I hope so, because, you know, they're really good values, but that's the same for any school. And and my concern and being the kind of cynic or the cynical person in the room here is to say, well, OK, this is our purpose. This is what we do. Mate, come and check my check my homework. But is that is that really accountability? Is that really what we're looking for in an accountability to an extent? Yes. Um, this is what I say I'm going to do. Am I doing it? But is that all we want from accountability? Because, you know, who's measuring that? And, and measurement is, is a really messy thing and I think has led to a lot of issues with Ofsted. But, um, you know, Thomas talked about the, the global standards, what's acceptable in certain contexts. And the, and the reality is, is that in the international sector, there is a huge variety of standards of education, for better or worse, in different aspects. And the question then comes is, whose standard are we using? Because, you know, a British standard of education is different to a Chinese standard of education and is different in many ways. Well, which ones are we looking for? Because if an international school wanted to play the game, they could pick the easy pickings and 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 go for things that are very difficult to measure and things that are going to please parents and do what they say they do. And yet at the same time as a parent choosing that school or as a member of staff wanting to work in that school, is that useful information to us? So. I think nothing, I mean, I, I think what Thomas said in terms of what he talks about in school is a prime example of the leadership team driving the accountability, right? It's the, the leadership team and their values and their culture. But that still doesn't get around the fact that a different leader in the same situation could do something very different or try and do the same thing, but not not do it as well. And I think that's the, the tension I feel during this conversation is that kind of, where does where is that balance, and how do we how do we know as teachers, parents, or, or potential employees, 
how, how do we have this external kind of idea of, of whether a school is doing what they say they do and whether they should be doing what they say they're going to do? Those are kind of the, the tensions I'm having. Oh, Dan, it's an absolute nightmare. It's not just a tension. I'm really struggling with how this gets resolved. And it is that time old thing that I hear so many times from staff where they go, you know, I get asked, Shane, which school would you recommend? Do you recommend this school? And I go, gosh, I don't know the leader at that school at the minute. So I can't tell you because the school itself, I can't hold faith in without knowing that individual leader. And, you know, and I know I was speaking with someone online when we first presented this question where they said, we have, what about the Council of International Schools? If you're accredited, you know, it's a good school. I challenge that strongly because I know many schools that are accredited who um, I wouldn't want to work for. Um, so, yeah, this, this tension really is quite a mess. Tom, I can see your hand up. I'm glad you're, the fireworks aren't uh, taking you away too much. What are you thinking? And then we've got a few minutes left to round up, Dan, so we can come back to you. This has been a brilliant discussion. Um, Tom, over to you. I'm going uh, to address Dan's tension um, a little bit. I might, I might cause a little bit more tension, but... Uh... <laughs> um, apologies if I do. The um, I'd say that the w across this conversation, there's been a there's been a, a reference made quite consistently about the international schools being a business and whether they're not for profit or profit. Um, and at some point, um, the accountability of the customer has to be has to be taken in, into account. Of they are choosing the school for these reasons. Now, if a school is, um, I, I'm going to use the marketing word just for the for want of a better word but if the school is telling parents in a marketing way that they're doing something and their children are going to learn to a particular level or they're going to learn they're getting a world-class education or whatever um then the parents also are paying for it and whatever their it might be their company paying for it but they are being paid by the company to make sure they're there um and at that point that's when the customers do have to hold the school to account and that that means the parents are are saying listen these are results we're expecting this is what this is what's going to happen to us now this is going to be very different because that means all schools have to manage expectations for their parents to make sure they know what they're going to get um but i just i feel that the the tension might come down to a a particular area where the parents do need to say actually we are the customers are we getting what we were promised Yeah, I think and that, I think that's something that drives a lot of international schools decision making, right? I guess the 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 challenge is is that should that be the key driver as education as a social enterprise or should we be pushing for a different narrative and trying to drive that conversation more a huge conversation here. Dan yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's the the second subsidiary tension, isn't it? You, you I, Thomas, you've hit you've hit absolutely spot on. Is that um, parents or companies are are the customer? I think that comes back to what I was saying at the beginning about kind of sometimes you don't see the long term effects of those decisions, and parents might be very happy with whatever is being sold to them for the three years they're at the school, but then they leave somewhere else. You know. Um, I don't think we're the only school in the world that receives students um, whose level of reading and writing and speech would be significantly below uh, what one would expect of age-related expectations. Um, there are many reasons for that. But I use that as an example because I think that's one of the 
one of the primary jobs of a, of a primary school is to teach children to read and write. Um, and I think that's where we get to is that that's the secondary tension that kind of hits me back in the face, as it were, is that parents are paying customers. But, you know, just because the Sun's the most popular newspaper in the UK doesn't make it the best, for example. Um, and, and I think that's the, the, the longstanding challenge for international schools is, is getting that balance right about doing what is in the best long term interest of the children versus being a business. And, and without that kind of balance, it's not going to work in any way, right? You can't, you can't be an amazing business, but be a poor educators and you can't be poor, uh, you know, good educators, but not be viable as a business. Um, so I think that tension always exists there. Um, but you know what, if that's the metric that, that we're going to hold international schools to, I think it's not the worst, you know, we want stu- every teacher, regardless of age, subject taught or whatever, will say they want happy students who, who, you know, can learn and, and enjoy learning and flourish in life. And if that's the metric we're using, that parents are happy with what we do, then that that feels like the least worst. Thanks, Dan. And thanks, um, Tom and Lucy and everyone who's contributed to this. This has been such an unbelievably rich discussion that doesn't happen all the time um, um, and is not always easy to kind of facilitate these kind of conversations. So I've... I've so appreciating the time you've spent to explore this important topic. I think we could go on for hours on this. This could be one of those spaces that just lasts for hours and hours. Um, but we try to keep these spaces too short to kind of get people thinking, get people talking. I think we can continue this conversation um, online. And it does require some sort of resolution. I'm so thankful, Dan, that you raised this as an idea um, to discuss. And I think it was a, a rich discussion between um, the few of us on the space today. And hopefully people who are listening in also get value from it too. So Dan, is there anything you'd like to to, to leave us with before we finish today? Uh, I mean, first of all, thanks for having me uh, co-host. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks to, to Lucy and Thomas for contributing. Um, my only final thought is that accountability is very very difficult <laughs> in international schools and i'm not even really sure where where i uh draw where i put put it for myself all i do know is that in the schools that really are fantastic um the sltr and teachers uh are driving the self-accountability i think that's the only thing i'm pretty certain of is that where you see amazing practice it cannot be without self-accountability of the people working in schools irrelevant of what else and what other noise is going on i think that is is there is an ethical and moral imperative and and the the best leaders and the best teachers uphold those standards themselves regardless of any uh, anything else that's going on so i think self-accountability is is yeah super important i think if anyone's going to international teaching or is thinking of moving schools i think look for leadership teams look for schools and structures and and things that are in place that demonstrate there is a a community of people who hold themselves to the highest standard i love that i love how you just articulated that and i couldn't articulate it better i think that's a great call to action dan and just shows how leadership is so essential and because funnily enough often great leaders attract great teachers as well so you end up with these hubs of brilliant practice. Um, I am incredibly thankful for the leadership on this call for, from, from Dan, from Lucy, from Thomas, but also from those listening in. Um, I'm thankful to this community. Um, I would love to 
chat with you more. We have um, online community spaces on X, Global Ed Leaders, and on LinkedIn if you want to join in the conversation there. There's small groups at the minute trying to develop a bit of a conversation around topics like this. I'm also looking for co-hosts to join. So Dan actually joined one of our earlier spaces and presented so well, I thought it would be great to co-host. So Lucy, Tom, if you fancy co-hosting in a future um, um, live space, we hold them every week. I would love to co-host with you, especially if you've got an idea that you think could be useful. So please get in touch. Let's let's do it. Let's get together. I've got a podcast, Global Ed Leaders. I popped in my newsletter in the um, little uh, tab at the top so you can subscribe to that if you're interested in this kind of thing. But um, I'll leave it there with another thank you and to say hopefully see you all next week for another brilliant Global Ed Leaders live space. 